back to yet another episode of a whole lot of gray as always i'm your host anish today i'm joined by miss charlotte littlewood a senior research fellow at the henry jackson society thank you charlotte for joining us today thank you for having me on awesome so before we get into i guess the meat of this conversation just walk my listeners through exactly like uh what it is that the henry jackson society does yeah, absolutely. So the Henry Jackson Society is a, like an independent uh, apolitical think tank. It does research on, on various topics, um, but it's, ba- it's based on values of democracy, um, liberty, uh, freedom of speech, individual liberties, equality and, and tolerance. So um, we will be doing work around um, countering Russia and China and geopolitical issues. Um, but also uh, we focus on stuff like countering extremism, cohesion, uh, community cohesion here in the UK, especially. And that, that's where I sit. Right. Awesome. Thank you for that. So um, recently, I think uh, a report uh, your organization did specifically that you were a part of authoring, made some waves right um, on the Internet and other parts of the media. Um, it was essentially tackling hate crimes against Hindus. Um, in light of the movie, The Kerala Story, and specifically Leicester and I believe other parts of the UK. Kind of walk us through the report itself, what your findings were, and what kind of motivated you to undertake this. Um, so just here, are you talking about the report into the Leicester unrest or the anti-Hindu hate schools? Oh, cool. Let's oh, tackle both, I guess, both the Leicester unrest <laughs> as well as the anti- um, I guess, yeah, clubbing them together doesn't do it justice. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the the... The look at anti-Hindu sentiment in schools very much uh, was inspired by the report into Leicester, so it's worth um, looking at both. Um, but it, last summer, there was significant unrest between Hindu and Muslim communities in Leicester um, and rioting on the streets. And there was an attack on a Hindu temple and attacks on various Hindu properties and vehicles. Um, and this was really worrying because for two reasons. One was this was completely unexpected um, and there was a big knowledge gap on where this has come from and why it was happening. And there was a huge knowledge gap as well around the kind of anti-Hindu slurs that we were seeing um, and the sentiment that was being communicated by quite well-known uh, Islamist extremists here in the UK. Um, and the other really worrying factor was that the, the media really didn't know how to handle this as well. Again, partly ignorance, but also a, a history of, of being sued by Islamists, when they report on anything to do with Islamist extremism, kind of led this sort of um, led this way in which they reported by path of least resistance by looking at the Hindu community. When they found that there was nothing really there to report on, they then just pointed to India. So a lot of the media around Leicester unrest wasn't about the Islamist agitators that had created a false narrative around some form of Hindu terror threat in the UK. Um, instead, the media was focusing on Modi um, because that was the path of, of least resistance and also... Right. Um, it's kind of low-hanging this... fruit in a sense, right? Yeah, you're not going to get sued. It's easy. Um, it's an interesting story that there might be some kind of political influence here in the UK that's causing unrest on the streets. It was a lot of supposition, um, but it was very peculiar considering there was a wealth of evidence that this was Islamist related and that various known extremists were involved, uh, including those with links to terrorism. So, but that was just uh, completely negated apart from the Telegraph, I think it was the only UK media outlet that, that gave that any coverage. 
Um, so that really kind of led me to think, well, what, what is this anti-Hindu sentiment? Why are we seeing it from these Islamists that normally we see them causing problems for the Jewish community, the LGBT community? What What is this? And, and what is, are we seeing a worrying development? Which is why I then looked at anti-Hindu sentiment at school to try and understand the slurs that we were seeing in Leicester and the kind of opposition to the Hindu community. Is that something that has been ongoing and just hasn't been noticed? Right. Um, and we very much found, found that to be the case. Right. Awesome. No, thanks for that. I think it's very articulate, obviously. I want to touch on something you said, which is uh, there was a wealth of evidence that it was maybe, you know, Islamic fundamentalists who were doing predominantly like a majority of the agitation. Um, what what exactly is the kind of motive, right? When, like you said, there's a wealth of evidence. It's abundantly clear who the agitators are. What is kind of the motive or the deterrent in this case? from actually reporting on the facts and ignoring all this wealth of evidence in a case like this? Well, I think fear of being sued. Right. Um, actual fear of intimidation, although when it comes to this kind of discussion, it's a little bit less risky than, for example, blasphemy and discussions around blasphemy. So um, there's a real aversion there, but there, there is an intimidation. Um, but I think also there's a history of the media outlets being blamed for being uh, Islamophobic. And so there was an opportunity there seen, especially by more of our left-wing um, platforms, to talk about a community for once that wasn't the Muslim community. And there has been an overemphasis on the Muslim community and issues pertaining to, to extremism, uh, also some social cohesion issues um, and issues that have been sort of around the elements of the Pakistani community. and. And I think there's like a fatigue, a media fatigue around discussing the Muslim community. So I do think there was just a general reaction of, oh, we can actually talk about the Muslim community as the victims to another community. Right. Um, that's an interesting new discussion that doesn't lend itself to being branded as Islamophobic. No, fair enough. Yeah. And I just want to ask you a question on that. So when we talk, I, I fully agree, right? Like maybe there is a history of mainstream media um, characterizing like all Muslims through this negative lens and kind of to compensate right for this history of Islamophobia it's like sure you know, but then they went ahead and did that to the Hindus in Leicester. exactly right so I was just gonna ask you like at what point does this game stop essentially right like where it's hey listen um because it's the same it's the same principle right of characterizing a whole group of people unfairly so like kind of what is the media angle for that it's hey, listen, now we might get sued, we could get in trouble, so let's not target this community. Let's, like you said, take the path of least resistance for a maybe more easygoing, more tolerant community. Um, but it's the same logic of unfairly characterizing people. At, is it pure sensationalism where the media is like, hey, listen, we don't care, we got to get our clicks? Or is it that they truly don't see that regardless of what the community is, ignoring the facts and unfairly characterizing people is the negative trade? I, uh, yeah, I don't think they've noticed that. <laughs> so I think that they needed to run a story on this incident. You couldn't go right. past what happened in Leicester without running stories on it. Um, that would have looked very strange. And the easiest thing to write, the least litigious thing to write, and the most interesting thing to write was an emergence of a new threat from a community that we don't normally assume there to be a threat from. Right. And <laughs> it was an easy one to do because there were no groups or people to point fingers at so that that really removes again the the 
the concern around libel and it all just becomes um suppositions so they suppose by the look here's some hindu young men with balaclavas being violent in leicester we suppose therefore that there could be an extremism that could be connected to india that could be an infiltration of sort of nationalist sentiment and it was everything kind of read like that with with comments from known islamists this was really problematic known islamists who supported that kind of supposition and said that there absolutely is a hindu extremism issue in the uk and there there absolutely is like now a terror threat and they should treat this like they treated isis was what one of the islamists said um and for that, I think, you know, a number of uh, media platforms have been in trouble. And one journalist in particular was sacked from The Guardian for her involvement no um, with one of the Islamists in question. Wow. So but, just again, kind of just again, for the benefit of our listeners and obviously myself is I'm just thinking what prevents a, you know, an individual Hindu in the UK from taking, you know, crazy offense to this whole hit piece essentially and going down the same route that the media outlets are trying to avoid, right? Like what if they go on this litigious rampage and start threatening lawsuits then? It, will they like suddenly start pulling all the stories or kind of walk me through the thought process there? Yeah, I mean, I think that there is an element to which the, the Hindu community in the UK does need to become uh, more robust um, and stand up for itself more and, um, sue where it needs to sue. Um, the issue is they're not naming names, these media platforms, and they're not naming groups. Um, whereas, you know, when it comes to dealing with the Islamist side of things, we knew who the people were. They they did things through their own media channels, like Mohammed Hijab just did things through his own media channels and claim, you know, his face and right. um, right. called for like a Muslim patrol through Leicester and things like that and and called. Hindus violent vegetarians and, and made sort of a lot of absurd comments. But he, yeah. you know, he put himself right at the front there and identified himself. Um, and then if you start discussing him in a news story, even if you have not libeled him, there is somewhat of a pattern of these Islamists just suing for the sake of suing just to cause a problem, um, right. even if they're going to lose. Right. It's kind of like, I'll make your life miserable regardless of the outcome in court. Yeah, and then it becomes a business case for media outlets. Like, is this worth it? Will we not get just as many people buying our newspaper if we don't talk about them and don't mention them? Um, therefore, let's not. And I think the Hindu community needs to stand up for themselves where they can and when, where they can make a legal case. But it... it it's difficult because there hasn't been anyone to point to because there hasn't been no one at fault. So right. therefore, yeah. you know, the, the young boys that were involved in the protesting in Leicester were very much sort of young, disenfranchised youth who had grievances that were out on the streets causing trouble with other conflict with Muslim youth. And they were getting into fights yeah. and there was like prejudice from both sides, probably anti-Muslim and anti-Hindu prejudice from both sides. Um, and these these guys, if you discuss these guys, then you know they haven't got money behind them. You, they're not going to end up with a law, a, a viable lawsuit there. So I think they're kind of just pawns in this game of chess, essentially, right? The people here, yeah. right? No, I fully agree with that. So one thing I wanted to touch on, which you said, which is it's kind of there's no real villain here, right? Like a lot of it is just a bogeyman, like indoctrination and just orchestrated to kind of pin it on a certain community 
Um, I was just going to ask, like, I'm sure you've thought about this deeply. If this becomes a continuing trend, how do you view it for not just, I guess, you know, um, Hindu-Muslim relations, but also for the large-scale cohesion of British society? Because this is all happening in the UK, right? This doesn't have the geopolitical angle of an India-Pakistan out here in South Asia. So what exactly is, I guess, your two cents on, okay, hey, how would this board for British society going forward if this kind of, let's say if the Henry Jacksons and the Charlotte Littlewoods of the world disappear and no one is essentially calling this phenomenon out, uh, the fabric, I think, I mean, from the outside looking in, could get eroded, right? If we just allow this narrative and if we just cave into threats, free speech gets eroded a bit, right? Or am I missing something? Well, I think there's a lot of different aspects to the threat that need rebutting um, that are a concern to cohesion here in the country. And, you know, we're seeing more agitation from pro-Khalistani separatists. Um, Anti-blasphemy action is becoming more prevalent and more violent um, across Europe. And then we're seeing this growing now agitation between the Hindu and Muslim communities. And I think as we run up to the elections next year in India, we're going to see definitely more of the Palestine related stuff, uh, potentially more anti-Hindu hate. Um, I understand that there was an attack on a uh, Hindu temple in the Netherlands at the same time as the Leicester unrest. I understand that there was graffiti on a Hindu temple, I think in the States or Canada, that that, that was against like Modi. Um, So I think there is a real concern across the West that ill feeling from those within certain communities towards Indian politics right now is going to manifest uh, more and more in in the diaspora. Um, And and, and we will see attacks on temples, um, attacks on the Hindu community, uh, continued protests outside high commissions. Um, It it is a concern, um, but it's not... You know, it's it's not triggering enough concern right. amongst government right. because they kind of see it as intercommunal, um, and it's a it's a really sad and horrible thing to have to sort of say. But I think until it largely affects the white community, government, or largely affects a community that has significant voting power, right. Um, right. government doesn't step up. Fair enough. Also, it's very timely you spoke about kind of these, you know, like destruction and vandalism of religious sites, specifically Hindu temples. I think it was either, I mean, at the time of recording, obviously, when this episode comes out, it might have been a few days, but uh, just yesterday or the day before, actually, I'm not sure if you saw this, but this 150 year old Hindu temple in Pakistan actually got completely looted and destroyed. So um, again, like largely radio silence about this topic. Um, and it happened very yeah. recently. Yeah. Uh, so one thing I just wanted to ask you again, um, what is it that, so when we speak about, you know, different separatist movements, like for example, Khalistan, we speak about this whole Muslim Hindu situation. Would you say that generally people in the media, people in academia and all parts of this ecosystem, are they aware of little statistics like the fact that i mean a majority of sikhs living in india are i mean in the world are still in india and in punjab and don't want to separate i think the recent data would suggest that a lot of khalistani separatists are actually more prominent in the uk and canada than in punjab 
And also regarding yeah. Muslims, there are more Muslims in India than in Pakistan. Like India is home to the second largest number of Muslims in the world. And it's not like they're struggling to, you know, get on boats and head to Pakistan and we're holding them hostage. No, I, I have no doubt in my mind that a majority of them are more than happy being in India and being Indian, right? Like, so is this kind of something that people in, you know, the West and specifically the ecosystem that we're concerned with, right? Like, which is the knowledge transfer, academia, media, are these stats that people are kind of aware of and they just brush under the radar or they're not even aware of to begin with? Uh, I think there's a real serious issue with ignorance. Um, yeah. And the next piece of research that I will be looking into is actually getting a chance to go out to the Punjab um, and um, speaking with Sikh Sivi in the Punjab and looking at how this is a diasporic, mainly a diasporic, issue and how the diaspora is exporting extremism back to the subcontinent um so i think that there needs to be a lot of research done by independent think tanks into understanding india and and the diaspora and the relationships and the facts um because we are lost in sort of milieu of fake news um, which the UK is lapping up through diasporic communities and right. taking them as spokespersons. Um, and then there's been quite a few really troubling documentaries done. Most recent piece of work I saw was something by Vice News. Um, and it's very interesting being someone who was probably the closest to to what was happening in Leicester. So I went and spent time out there right on the back of the, of the unrest and spoke to those that were involved, that, that protest, that marched, that, that homes were attacked. Um, and I got a very deep understanding of, of what was going on. So to watch Vice News do a documentary on the Leicester unrest, which showed a, a, a couple of bits of footage that was actually one of a, the Hindu kids being stabbed and their flag being taken off or ran off with and then it jumped to India and showed a part of an old vice documentary um about those guarding the cows and I mean there's a really really awful practice that's going on with these sort of rogue policing groups um in India and there are obviously problems in India but it focused purely on that and it just went from this is what's happening in Leicester some video of a Hindu boy being stabbed but portrayed it to be Muslim uh, victimhood, right? right? And then jumped right. to India and showed issues around cow protection um, and just made, and, and the, the documentary was called The Global Hindutva. Oh, wow. Um, and, and Vice yeah. is streaming this? Vice. Wow, crazy. Yeah. Vice. Um, so that just really shows you, I, I mean, you get to a point where it becomes hard to say is this not implicit, but I still believe that the media is not understanding the issue rather than the media is purposely trying to paint a really awful image of Hindus in India. Um, but the, by, by effect of not understanding the issue, that is what they are doing. Right. No, absolutely. I think, yeah, I mean, ignorance, whether willful or not, does have these consequences, right? So I think that's very well highlighted. One thing I wanted to ask you is, and we we touched on this in prior conversation, we speak often about how um, a lot of, not, not just or exclusively Britain, but a lot of former colonial powers kind of have a selective colonial amnesia, right? And um, specifically here, I, I always tell people this, right? Like, look, India is obviously an emerging market now. It has a ton of people 
living in poverty, which obviously hopefully will get better. But this is the reality today. But I tell people all the time that if we were always like this, then Britain and the other European countries would have never showed up, right? Like, why would they have shown up to a super poor country? Right? Just think logically, forget agenda and everything else. You'd go to a place, you'd call, you wouldn't colonize a place that has no resources or civilization to offer, right? I think we can all agree on that. So is this is this basic, before we get into the, I guess, depths of colonial amnesia and how institutions and education themselves can be reformed, would you say this base level of understanding that, hey, at one point, a couple centuries ago, not too far off, India was a thriving, super rich civilization, or do people kind of not add two and two together? I don't think India is seen in the same way as other colonial, colonized countries and states were. So I don't think, for example, the way in which you're taught at school about the slave trade and colonization of parts of Africa is the same with regards to India. You're not you're not taught that you come that India was a people that were um, without resource and struggling to develop in this in the same way the struggle is discussed around other parts of Africa. Right. Um, <laughs> but there's absolutely a, an arrogance. There's absolutely a um, the UK was the, the the empire was the British Empire was the most progressed. Like Britain was the most progressed and went and reached out to less progressed countries. Right. Um, but I don't think India is like portrayed as being particularly regressed. Um, but you're right, it's, you know, there's a, definitely an arrogant sort of talking down, which has continued to manifest subconsciously and translate into, I think, curriculum around uh, Hinduism in particular, which probably segues us onto the next report which is right right yeah no and i look forward to that report of course but uh just a bit more on this topic i guess is would you say again um and not not to like put you on the spot or expect you to you know represent like everyone in the uk obviously but just your observation um just a couple of interesting stats right which um they say that roughly if you account it in us dollars in today's uh, purchasing power metrics, they say that the rough estimate of what the British Empire looted from India, it's in the tens of trillions of dollars. The count goes to as high as like 25, 30 trillion USD, which is, I mean, even today, that's like one and a half times the GDP of the US, right? So that's an obscene amount of wealth. Um, would you say, I guess, I'm, I'm sure more most people in the UK know that the Kohinoor diamond is obviously like from India, right? Like it's not an inherently British thing. Uh, but would you say little things like the fact that trillions of dollars have been looted from the subcontinent? And another crazy stat, which I feel like um, most people may not know is, and I, I also didn't know this pretty recently, is in the world wars, Indian soldiers after the Americans and I think British, we were like, we gave up the third or fourth highest number of civilian soldier casualties throughout both wars. And this was a war that, I mean, we had no business in, honestly. And don't get me wrong, I think we can all agree it's, it's good the Axis powers were defeated. I'm not saying otherwise. But we were subjugated and still had to volunteer our soldiers to go fight this war. And it's like the third highest in terms of the body count. So by way of Indian soldiers sacrificing themselves for um, these two great wars, 
and trillions of dollars being looted, would you say these stats are kind of like people in the ecosystem know, or is it kind of, again, just cobwebs and no there's one really a lot talks of discussion, about? There's a lot of discussion about the diamond in, I can't remember which crown it's in. Um, and I know that um, King Charles didn't wear it for that reason. But there is discussion around the fact that that particular stone, the narrative around that stone is that it has actually been passed or between multiple various people, that's what they say. Yeah, various different ownerships. It was eventually gifted to the royal family. So I think like, like you've just given some really good examples of where there is a real issue of um, colonial looting um, and taking advantage of, of people. Um, so I do think the stone is always like a bit of a misdemeanor and a false right. flag. It's a smoke screen in a way, right? To kind of distract. It, is, and it just gets you confused in a conversation about whether or not that really was stolen. And then you lose the actual discussion, yeah. um, which is the, the negative impacts of empire. Um, and, and, and there's cases for various different countries have been stolen from various different places in the world. And um, I think awareness around that and support with countries in development is very, very necessary. Um, and I hope that, you know, we're, we have a large number of Hindus living in, in the UK. And I do hope that, <laughs> I really hope that what we've seen last year and that my concerns around the anti-Hindu sentiment is not something that is going to progress in, into a, a bigger problem and that we can continue to have a very functioning, um, integrated and, and successful but Hindu community that are very happy to be British and Hindu, you know. Right. Um, yeah. I, I do hope that we can move on not only from what happened with the British Empire and thrive as co-communities living in the UK. But yeah, I'm, I'm concerned about the, the scars of colonialism. I'm concerned about the way in which these topics are taught in school. I'm concerned about the way in which Hinduism is taught in school. I'm concerned that we haven't really shared all of that yet. And um, I'm concerned that now we're having a conflict that is playing out, particularly being fueled by Pakistan uh, now here in the UK. Right. Let's touch on something you said, um, which is the way Hinduism is taught in school kind of um in you know you're obviously pretty deeply embedded in the academic slash think tank ecosystem how would in your personal experience how was i guess um hinduism taught to you how is it taught in general and what are kind of the negatives of that approach yeah i mean until i did my own research onto it recently and and and, and did the report on into the anti hindu sentiment schools i didn't realize how bad my education was <laughs> Right. Um, but uh, to describe how I was taught Hinduism, um, I was taught it at primary school, so the ages of sort of um, maybe like eight, twelve, at some point in that in 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 that bracket, and it involved drawing and coloring in um, Hindu deities and being taught that they are the the multiple gods of Hinduism, um, and that. Um, it was definitely taught as a less important faith and one that we interrogated far less than Abrahamic faiths. Right. Abrahamic faiths were given an element of, that there was an element of truth to them. Right. Um, right. And right. that the 
philosophy and theology and everything pertaining to the Abrahamic faith was really worth understanding. Um, and obviously, you know, it was a it was a primary school that was next to a church, so there were regular visits to a church. And the teachers were more comfortable with understanding and teaching on Abrahamic faiths. And this sort of just come comes through. Um, and then when it comes to Hinduism, it's sort of rushed over. Then you may be lucky to get a trip to a, a temple, um, but it is in no way afforded the same respect. Um, and then when it came to actually doing the research, we found that there were multiple um, suggestions of polytheism, multiple gods, not understanding the notion of deity, not understanding the notion of a, of a belief system that doesn't have a set scripture. Um, not understanding that it's more of a, a, a way of thinking um, than a worship and a belief in, in one God and a scripture. Right. Um, and yeah, that, that's just completely lost. Wow. And it, it was directly leading to bullying in the classroom. So people were having lessons on Hinduism and then straight after Hindus were being Weaponizing bullied, it to rag on a bunch of Hindu kids, essentially. Well, it's been taught so badly that it's then the point is that it's been taught in such a way that the particularly the Muslim peoples in the class realize it's not being taught in the way that Hindu peoples in the class understand their faith because the Muslim communities are are more aware as well. So they can also notice the teacher is not using the right terminology or is emphasizing on something that that then will lead to mocking. Right. and then there have been points where teachers have been challenged by Hindu pupils and teachers have dismissed the Hindu people. Wow. I, I was just going to touch on that. I think you put it so well, right? I was going to ask you if the fact that it's polytheistic, it's a way of life as opposed to a set doctrine, if that's kind of a part of it. And it seems like it is, right? Like why it's not taught as coherently as the Abrahamic faiths. So you say, why is it not taught as coherently? Yeah. Like, is it because it's just polytheistic? It's a way of life as opposed to a set doctrinal religion? Is that kind of the motive? Or is it, again, just like lack of awareness? Word, I don't mean like the word polytheistic. I think that's because from an Abrahamic perspective, we want to see gods. Right. Um, Because we understand religion to need a certain, like a very well understood and defined God. Right. Um, and... But when you come to look at Hinduism, it from from just I mean from what I understand just from from talking to Hindus here and and my reading I mean you you all know but that it's more of like a representation of one's own understanding of of, of the world around them and that the, right. the deities are more a way of growing close to greater knowledge and understanding and awareness rather than them being a defined god that you worship. Right. Yeah, no, it's the only religion, I mean, mainstream religion in the world, which allows you to be an atheist or agnostic or anything else, right? Like you can be a devout Hindu and kind of do your own thing. So, yeah. no. Would I definitely... you call them gods? Uh, no, nah, I'd say they're different versions or avatars of right. um, the essence, yeah. I think is a more accurate way. Like so That's why like the word polytheism. Um, it implies multiple the, gods per se. Yeah. It does imply multiple gods, um, which immediately draws you in again to trying to understand it as if it is just another form of Abrahamic faith that has multiple gods and multiple right. gods that you worship, right? Um, and that's problematic because A, that's not what it is, but B, um, there is such a negative connotation historically from Abrahamic faiths towards uh multiple multiple gods so um 
that it's been used as a negative slur essentially towards right, those non-Abrahamic. Um, but I think I think the reason why the teaching is poor is because teachers themselves tend to come from Abrahamic faith backgrounds, so they're right. comfortable with that and they have a way of looking at faith and they understand it through that lens and it can be quite difficult to take your own concept of the world that you've grown up with off and understand completely different concepts like a different language entirely it's a different framework um, of understanding faith entirely um, that's very challenging and you've got to imagine that most teachers aren't especially primary school are not experts in in, in these things dealing with some the post-colonial hangover as well I think there is a inherent subconscious um, disrespect to Hinduism and Hindu culture that has gone unchallenged. Um, and you can see it through the way in which Hinduism is not afforded the same respect in schools with regards to like holidays and celebrations, Diwali is not given the same as Eid May, for example. Um, and Is Diwali not a holiday in the UK? Well, the, the schools aren't respecting it as such, whereas they will respect Christmas and to an extent Eid. Eid. Interesting. Eid. Interesting. Uh, we spoke we spoke a bit about the concept of, you know, avatars and stuff. Do people know that the James Cameron blockbuster like Avatar is fully inspired by Hinduism and stuff? Or they no? they don't. I mean, I'm only vaguely aware because people have adopted like his avatars as their avatars as their Hindu and they were like yeah because it's representative of Hinduism that's the only way I knew that myself so yeah. no <laughs> yeah no fair enough also like Oppenheimer's dropping this coming weekend right and um I mean Christopher Nolan classic I'm sure it's gonna break every blockbuster record um even Oppenheimer in real life Dr. Robert Oppenheimer he was like a Sanskrit scholar and um even the iconic quote, right, which he says, I'm sure he's going to kill it, Murphy will kill it in the movie. He says, it's, it's a direct quote from the Bhagavad Gita where he says, now I'm death destroyer of all worlds in response to the bomb successfully being detonated. Uh, and I, I'm guessing most people probably wouldn't have this awareness as well, right? No, no, the actual kind of respect for Hindu history and culture and respect for the the success of the Hindu community, especially like even diasporic success as well, it is not there. And it's something that we are trying to work on um, because the concern really here is that without a proper understanding of Hindu culture, Hindu faith, we if we continue to see disrespect towards the community and um, a lack of redress for the community, um, we, we could see a reciprocal radical radicalization in which the treatment of the Hindu community, the targeting of them and calling them extreme and disrespecting um, the culture, even in the way it's taught, could lead to elements of the community then becoming extreme. And we could see the very issue that um, the media has suggested that is manifesting. Right. No, I think very, 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 very well put. Um, just one thing which I think my listeners would want me to ask you this is, you know, obviously the current prime minister of the UK is of Indian origin. Um, we're doing this recording here in Bangalore, which is where his wife and father-in-law uh, are from, actually. Um, so kind of do you, do you think that um, this is a, I'm not saying like top priority for his tenure, but do you think it is something we can be hopeful for by way of, you know, 
Hinduism getting the respect it deserves, it being taught properly, uh, kind of, you know, not being made a mockery out of under this um, new prime minister, or is he just merely um, a cog in the system? I'm worried on two fronts with that. Um, one is he will never want to make himself look like he is particularly a Hindu community spokesperson. So he's not um, going to in any way create an image that suggests he's the, the Hindu spokesperson. He wants to make sure he is prime minister first and, and overall, which I, I understand. But when it came to the Leicester unrest last year and the ongoing um, issues around well, how the independent report was going to be conducted and the media that came out on the back of that, um, I do think that it would have been right to have heard something from him, um, even not in the capacity as a Hindu prime minister, just as the prime minister talking about um, concerns around community well-being. Um, but we didn't hear anything, and so that, that was disappointing. Um, but I, I, I do think he's acting as, as a sort of um, a positive role model and showing what people from... Um, all backgrounds can can achieve right. um, in the UK, which has has a real positive message. Um, but yeah, he, he he could be doing more when it when it comes to the area of communities. But I also understand why he may not be. Right. No. Fair enough. And we'll just one last question before we wrap this interview up. Um, so we spoke a bit about um, in previous conversation about how you know a lot of the times certain communities, for example, the Jewish community or the Hindu community, um, they often don't fit the quote unquote definition of what it means to be a victim, right? Because typically they're affluent, they're well-off, they're well-educated, so on and so forth. Do you ever see this mindset of, hey, listen, because you're well-off and because you place a premium on education and because maybe you're not as litigious um, as everyone else, you can't be a victim. Do you ever see that mindset like changing going forward or is it almost impossible to break out of? I think that um, it, it's important to call the hypocrisy out in the left on that. Right. So the left traditionally is about standing for equality and human rights um, and against oppression and against prejudice. Right. So the left, when it is really, really shown to them that the anti-Semitism is present. They, they will do something about it because it's a leftist cause to stand for minority communities against persecution. Um, so I think it is a task of continuing to call out that hypocrisy and continuing to showcase where there is prejudice and where this is harming a minority community and trying to lift the far left or the aggressive left as we would refer to them out of that lens um, that sees everything through color, skin color and everything through wealth and success um, creating these the, the, what we would call identity politics um, and I, I do actually have hope for that I do have hope that that can be broken by just relying on the kind of core leftist values, which are to stand for equality and tolerance. And if you keep making the case and showing the case and evidencing the case that these minorities are being persecuted, whether or not they may be considered successful to have money, you know, having money doesn't stop a, a man in a kipper being beaten up in the street. Absolutely. Whether he or not, I don't know. But, you know, the perception that he has money is actually causing him in times to be targeted. 
no matter what your background is, you don't escape um, persecution from another group if you are seen in that way and treated in that way. And I think that's something that the left are able to understand. And I would consider myself a part of the left. So I consider it my my duty to really sort of strip back that far left and regressive thinking and just keep challenging the hypocrisy. Right. No, I think as you so eloquently said, like calling out that double standard is what's vital to winning this battle going forward. Right. And I know I said it was the last question, but legit, just 30 seconds more of your time is you're familiar with Shimon Perez, the former head of state of Israel. Um, not particularly with his work or anything, just that. Okay, just the name kind of rings about. Yeah, fair yeah. enough. Well, well, he was the one of Israel's most prominent heads of state, and take a guess as to this is again his own words, not like some conspiracy theory from a niche. Uh, guess by his own admission, the only country where historically. Jews have never experienced religious persecution or anti-Semitism. Are they, you going to say India? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It is, right? So, I mean, even today, even though it is dwindling, obviously, there still is a Jewish community in Bombay and stuff. And it's obviously far less than, say, in Europe, America, or obviously Israel. But yeah, this is just something fun to know. I actually had the opportunity to visit both Israel and Palestine a few years back. And um, there's actually a World War One memorial two Indian soldiers who lost their lives fighting in World War One in Israel. So it's kind of a nice little symbiotic relationship, you know, where I feel like we're both getting persecuted against and Jews get to say like, hey, um, they never faced persecution. Uh, can you Sorry, I broke me? up there a bit. Yeah, can, am I back but, on now or? Yeah, I can hear you now. Uh, Oh, now you're frozen. Yeah, you you're frozen for me as well. Hold up. Let me okay, know. now you're back. I think. Okay, I'm back. You're you're still frozen. Could you try like turning your screen on and off? Yeah, much better. Awesome. Cool. Yeah. Um, I was gonna say I'd like to know. Oh, is it stopped again? No, I can hear you. I can hear you. I can see you and hear you. Yeah. Um, as I said, I'd like to know how he conducted that, and, and if he'd spoken to people that were living in India over a certain period of time. Um, but I think there's absolutely a parallel to be drawn between how the Hindu communities are being treated and the Jewish communities with regards to how they are being attached to. Uh, state politics um, abroad most of the time. So we're talking about the diaspora, talking about the Hindu community in the UK being um, attacked um, for the reason of politics in India when the diaspora may have little to no knowledge at all of what the politics are in India right now. And that's obviously the same with anti-Semitism, um, where you see the Jewish diaspora um, attacked for politics in, in Israel and Palestine. And that is a really concerning development. Um, it's really nasty of uh, prejudice towards the community um, that it can be quite difficult to understand and quite difficult for um, people to then tackle. Um, right. And as we now go towards the elections next I think the Hindu community face more of.
Right. Yeah. Can we? Can, you can hear and see me, okay? Or am I still freezing? Okay. Yeah. I, I was gonna say I, I got all your audio, but I think your video. Okay. We'll fix this in post production. Um. But anyway. Well. Okay. One last question, and I promise you, we're we're done. Um, cool. So going forward, I guess, you know, we've obviously spoken about the parallels between the Hindu community and the Jewish community. I think you put it so eloquently, right, that diaspora communities, especially of these two faiths, are having to answer for, you know, political issues back in India and Israel, which, like you said, they probably have absolutely zero part or knowledge in, right? Just the other day, I saw a stand-up, a Jewish stand-up comic at a comedy club in New York get, like, heckled and you know, having to answer for why Palestine is, you know, not a free state. And I think that's textbook anti-Semitism, which a lot of these, you know, activists don't realize is how is a Jewish comedian going to answer for, you know, Middle Eastern politics and settlement policies? It's it's insane. Um, so yeah, just over above the fun little fact that, you know, Israel is the only place that has a World War One memorial for fallen Indian soldiers. And Shimon Peres says that India had, you know, was welcome Jewish people without any anti-Semitism. I think the diaspora angle is also something equally important to consider. Mm -hmm. And like you said, they, they don't realize that that itself is discrimination, right? Kind of putting the onus on Hindu diaspora members in Europe or Jewish diaspora members overseas. Uh, one last question. Thank you so much for your time, Charlotte. Um, one last question, which is if you could point to one thing going forward, which you would like to see, I guess, right? If optimistic, pessimistic is anyone's guess, if you would like to see happen in the UK-India relationship going forward, and one thing, one step which you would like to see within the UK as it comes to, let's say, decolonizing the mind and decolonizing the institutions and having candid conversations about the travesties mm -hmm. of empire. If you could pick one thing each in your own words, and I think that's a great note to end on. Um, I think a greater respect to India as a as a partner, um, uh, rather than a post-colony entity, um, and the kind of arrogance with which the UK handles um, India. Um, I think the relationship needs to be better based on truth and trust. And I think truth and trust are the main things: the fact finding and research other than relying on fake news that's being spread by diaspora, um, that then we'll begin to build trust. So then proper conversations um, with regards to trade and even defense can really begin to happen. Right. I think yeah. when it comes to um, removing sort of the scars of colonialism, especially in the UK and the diaspora, um, I think it needs to start with the Hindu community having a cooperative hand in teaching of Hinduism and history. Yeah. Um, kind and, of like um, becoming a stakeholder in yeah. education, if you will. Yeah, and that's something that I think can be achieved because religion is locally set with sacres, which have religious representatives on them. And it's about ensuring that there's Hindu representatives on those sacres. And it's about going in training schools and working with teachers to ensure that um, non-Abrahamic faiths, Dharmic faiths, for example, are, are being best taught. Right. I hope you learned something. And if you enjoyed, please like, share, subscribe, circulate this content. Let us know in the comments below if we're missing anything and if you'd like to see anything else. Cheers, guys. Ta -ta.